0: Hello, and welcome to Pontifacts. I'm Fry, And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And today, several weeks later, we are still getting over the mess that was Pope Vigilius, and so we're going to spend a little bit more time on the Second Council of Constantinople 553. This is the fifth ecumenical council of the church and it's definitely a dramatic one and because it's been so long fry you may not even remember anything that happened at this council that we talked about (laughs) god it's been like a month over a month we have not recorded in a very long time due to sound education, and then me being in New York, and then you being sick, and then your children having lice, and then that car accident I was in turned out to have soft tissue consequences. So, here we are. And guess what? You really didn't even notice we're gone because we stayed roughly on schedule. Yeah, you didn't miss us at all? Yeah. So, if you have been listening to the show and you're not listening to it directly at the time of release... You've already heard the whole lead-up to this council, probably fairly recently, from, you know, the initial attempts of the Byzantine emperors to reconcile the Monophysites of the East with the Orthodox doctrine of the West. Oh, it was Monophysitism. All right. I mean, you, I still, when you guessed off-air Nestorianism, you just threw out Nestorianism at me, you're not entirely wrong, but we're gonna get there, so... We've also covered, like, how problematic the decrees of the Council of Chalcedon have been in making all of this happen, so we're not going to go all the way back and revisit the Enkiklikon and then the Hanoticon, but we will at least cover, for those of you who may be turning into this episode without the context of our papal episodes, the Emperor Justinian and his relationship with religion. So Justinian was an Orthodox Christian, and as we've pointed out in several of our previous episodes, his initial interactions with the earlier popes, starting with Pope John II, were mostly positive. However, Justinian's wife, Theodora, goes down in history as either being a full-on monophysite or at least a miaphysite with heavy sympathetic leanings towards the monophysites. She's also an intensely hated figure by the contemporary or slightly post-contemporary sources of the age, so she is portrayed as the foremost schemer that plotted and pushed on behalf of her monophysite favorites. So, even on the imperial level, beliefs are somewhat divided. So it's no surprise that the Eastern-Western churches are in the same sort of divisive conflict. And Christianity is nowhere near a unified, cohesive church of mutually agreed theology and doctrine. Surprise, surprise. But this is what Justinian wants it to be, you know? And it has become a primary goal of his entire ruling ambition. He wants to reconcile monophysitism and orthodoxy to bring his entire empire into consensus. He's trying to make fetch happen. He is trying to make fetch happen. Even if he has to push in and interfere all over the church to make it happen. So, the proposed solution comes to Justinian while he was in the process of issuing a condemnation of Origen, that early church theologian who's been extremely influential. Why do they keep talking about him? Like... They just, they get bored and they bring up this man from a million years ago. Yeah, they're just like, hey, did anybody remember that Origin was condemned? Because he's condemned again. Haha, suck it. Did you forget he's condemned? Uh, you know, people have such strong, strong feelings about Origen. So he's only tangentially related here. But the primary reason that Origen became a target for condemnation again had more to do with the theology of some of his followers and adherents rather than what he actually wrote down. So they were... And they two of them have, like, a very similar name. Mm, Yes, you're right. Oh, my gosh, you remember. (laughs) I was like, hmm, are we talking all the way back to Apollinarianism and Sibelianism? But no, you're correct. So at the time, it was a group of extreme Palestinian monks who were the source of the renewed conflict. They were origin adherents and proclaimed based on Origin's teachings that souls pre-existed humans and also taught that through Christ they were and once again would be equal to Christ in the hereafter. And these monks were called the Isochristoi. And we can see why this thought would be problematic. You know, imperfect humans equal to Christ? Never. How dare you... And then there were another group of Palestinian originist monks who weren't quite as extreme, but held a moderate view of Christ as the first created being, which sounds very Aryan. And these are the Protochistoi, the first creationers, if you will. So yes, these two are, are the groups that are in conflict with one another. The Protochistoi condemned the isochristoi as heretics and vice versa. We are going to cover this particular conflict in more detail in later episodes, more likely, but what we need to know for this episode is just that these two groups were one of the reasons that Origen was coming back to the forefront of the theological debate. So, you know, they're fighting about it, and Justinian issues a condemnation against Origen in 542, commanding that all of his writings should be burned and the Isochristoi and the Protochistoi should be suppressed as heretics. But one of Justinian's trusted advisers, Theodore Ascidus, the Bishop of Caesarea, was a proponent of Origen's doctrine, and rather than just decide to resist the Emperor's decree, which we know wouldn't have gone well for him, he worked at deflecting the emperor's attention back towards his ultimate goal of church reconciliation. So, hey, no, don't look at Origen. Remember that big thing you want to do? Why don't you work on that for a while? And so he proposes that if Justinian were to condemn theologians of the Antiochian school, a.k.a. the distinctive two-nature Christology of Nestorius, see? Oh, I got there he could potentially bring the Monophysites around to agreement with the Orthodox Church, since Nestorianism as heresy is something that both Monophysites and Orthodox clerics can agree on. So, with the help of Theodore Ascetus and other theological advisors, three deceased Antiochian scholars who had in some way in their writings either professed or supported a two-nature Christology with some sort of distinction between a human Christ and a divine Christ, were put forth for condemnation, which we've already discussed, but will be referred to as the three chapters. The three in particular were theologians that had been repeatedly targeted by monophysite criticism in the past, and so by passing this posthumous condemnation, Justinian helped to bring them on side. So... The three chapters that are getting anathematized are Theodore, Bishop of Mopsuestia, and his writings, the writings of Theodoret, Bishop of Cyrus, and a letter from Ibis, Bishop of Edessa, to Maris of Hardashire. And we're going to break those down a little bit, because that's a lot to just throw out there as word soup. So Theodore, Bishop of Mopsuestia, which is modern-day Adana in South Turkey, lived from about 350 to 428, and he was initially a friend and follower of John Chrysostom, who we discussed in Pope Innocent's episode, episode 42. He was also a leader in the Antiochian school of thought. He was said to have been a teacher of Nestorius, and Evagrius Scholasticus credits him for being the one who inspired Nestorius's doctrine. He says, quote, Nestorius, having met with Theodore at Mopsuestia, was perverted by his teaching from godly doctrine. So the, the teachings of Theodore had already been condemned at the ecumenical councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon, but he personally had never been anathematized, so now they're gonna do that for good measure. Theodoret, the bishop of Cyrus, lived from 393 to 458, and was also a significant and influential theologian of the Antiochian school. He might have been a student of our previous man, Theodore of Mopsuestia, and credits him as being one of his teachers or his sources of influence, but historians believe that that's somewhat unlikely. Either way, he was definitely an adherent of Theodore's doctrine, and he found himself in trouble with the church when he got involved in the doctrinal controversy over Cyril of Alexandria, writing a condemnation of Cyril's anathemas, which was sent on to Nestorius. He also defended his Antiochian school predecessors, like Theodore, against people like Cyril, and for that he was excluded from the Second Council of Ephesus. He was also not in favor of condemning Nestorius as a heretic, despite not necessarily sharing his theology, he was just not about favoring or supporting a unconditional condemnation of Nestorius until the Council of Chalcedon, because at the Council of Chalcedon, he finally does, and therefore he is restored as Orthodox. Now, he's included in the three chapters condemnation for the writings against Cyril and for his role at being excluded at the Council of Ephesus. And finally, Ibis, the bishop of Edessa, was the bishop in that city from the 430s to 450s and he died in 457. He was an adherent of the teachings of Theodore of Mopsuestia and helped disseminate his ideology in the East. Bishop Ibis was at the First Council of Ephesus in 431 and had written a letter to Maris, who was the Bishop of Hardazur in Persia, after the council, describing the council and what had happened in the two years since despite the fact that Nestorius is condemned in the letter for refusing to accept Mary as the Theotokos, the fact that this letter also heavily criticizes Cyril and attacks the twelve anathemas as heresy, the letter is considered, maybe not exactly heretical, but hostile to orthodoxy. So he was deposed in the Second Council of Ephesus for this hostile letter, and other of his views that might have been considered heretical. But at the Council of Chalcedon, it was declared that his deposition was unlawful, so he was restored, and his letter to Maris was read out in exact wording, and all of the bishops at Chalcedon declared it to be orthodox. But in the time since then, his restoration has been a source of resentment among the Monophysites, and the letter to Maris attacking Cyril was reevaluated, and so now they're like, actually, it's heretical, and we're going to anathematize this guy. We don't like it. Mm-hmm. We don't like it because that group we're trying to get in with, they don't like it. So, obviously, we're breaking it down into these three people, and the complexity of the issue is hard to fully convey, considering that, At this point, we understand that the Antiochian school of theology has generally already been condemned, and Nestorianism has been thoroughly excommunicated from the Orthodox Church through the Council of Chalcedon. Yes, a million years ago. Yeah, a distinct, separate, two-nature doctrine of Christology has been refuted in the Tome of Leo, and in the Chalcedonian definition of the hypostatic union, which states literally, quote, acknowledged in two natures unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. So. They just, like, rehashing the exact same thing over and over again. They are doing so many rehashing. However, this hasn't prevented criticism of Cyril's anathemas, as it was often, as we talked about at the time, misunderstood as too one-natured for the hypostatic union. Like, even at the Council of Chalcedon it was used to balance the Tome of Leo. Those two documents worked together. So condemning the three chapters for critique of Cyril is somewhat arbitrary, to say the least. And, I mean, both Ibis and Theodora had been restored after being deposed, so it looks even more arbitrary to just be like, no, now that these guys are dead, no, we're just gonna anathematize them to make other people happy. And on top of that, Although Justinian was using this whole three-chapter situation to come down hard on the Nestorian side of the Christological scale, there's no equal condemnation on the other side for, like, extreme monophysitic doctrine. So the Orthodox Church, which is sitting in the middle, is watching Justinian try to be cozy with the monophysites and not say that what they thought was also wrong. So it concerns them. They see the appeasement, but they don't see any incentive for the Western Orthodox churches to agree to this condemnation of the three chapters. I mean, moreover, condemning men that had been absolved as Orthodox at the Council of Chalcedon was particularly troublesome because that council's already always under attack. And this would undermine canons for the council, which, you know, for the Orthodox, they're they're worried that this is going to open it up to further scrutiny, or the possibility that the Council of Chalcedon gets ignored, like the Hanoticon had tried to do already. They're trying to do this thing, and people are like, nah. And they're like, please stop. I said it already. Please stop ignoring me. Yeah, can you just like... Let us be with our orthodoxy that we've already established. Why are you trying to do this thing? So when the first edict against the three chapters was put forth by Justinian, he received cooperation in the East, for the most part, but the Western churches regarded the condemnation with a great deal more suspicion and resistance. The Western bishops argued the condemnation wasn't necessary and resisted Justinian's interference in church affairs which was already causing a great deal of resentment, considering what had just happened to Pope Silverius and Pope Vigilius, who was already on shaky ground for that exact reason, realized that if he confirmed the emperor's decree, he would lose any actual support that he had among all the rest of the people who thought he was a murderer. And he had to establish his papacy independent of imperial interference if he wanted even a shot so he refused to acknowledge the edict against the three chapters but this also went poorly for him because as soon as it was clear that the pope wasn't going to submit to the emperor's wishes imperial guards were sent to arrest him during the middle of church services at the Santa Cecilia in Trastevere. And they pulled off his beard, no. That's not even that one. This is the one where they arrested him and put him on a ship for Constantinople. Ah, yes. I mean, that's Pope napping number two. We're on Pope napping number one. So, when he arrived in Constantinople after being arrested and put on a ship, the emperor acted as if he hadn't just made the pope his captive and was optimistic that they could come to some sort of accord. But Vigilius continued to equivocate and waver and go back and forth, issuing and then recanting excommunications against the Patriarch of Constantinople, agreeing to condemn the three chapters, and then pulling back before he actually did, and then even goading the imperial couple until he was physically beaten. So... The Liber Pontificalis gives us this account. Quote, but Vigilius would not yield to them, but preferred to die virtuously than to live. And Pope Vigilius said, I perceive that it was not the devout princes Justinian and Theodora who summoned me to them. Rather I know today that I have met Diocletian and Eleutheria. Do with me as you will, I am receiving the reward of my deeds. Thereupon one struck him in the face, saying, murderer do you not know to whom you speak i'm so glad they're just like you murderer. yeah um you already have the blood of maybe three people on your hands do you really want to give us guff no they're not about that so by that point that he's actually getting hit by the imperial couple in april of 548 worn down by all the imperial pressure Vigilius finally relented and issued his Judicatum, condemning the three chapters. Not completely, but in majority. So, his version of this Judicatum anathematized Theodore of Mopsuestia, the writings of Theodoret, and Ibis' letter, and attempted to put forth, as well, a clear declaration that him doing this in no way undermined the decisions made by Chalcedon. Even though, It would undo Chalcedon's decision on Theodoret and Ibis as orthodox? No, it doesn't undermine anything at Chalcedon. No, this isn't undermining. This is absolutely normal. Totally normal. Um, everything's still cool. And apparently, according to historian Henry Chadwick, Vigilius thought that in publishing his solemn judgment in the East, it somehow wouldn't immediately reach the West, so he'd have some time to you know, soften the blow. And when he found out that his deacon and nephew, Rusticus, had sent copies directly to the West, he was so upset. You idiots. So Rusticus is like, Nah, even though you're my uncle, I'm not about this. You messed up, and I'm going to tell everybody. (laughs) And of course, as we know, the West absolutely exploded when they received the Judicatum. They are appalled and horrified that the Pope assented to this condemnation. And he lost almost all of his support right there from any Western bishops, including those who were currently in his entourage. And he was formally excommunicated in a North African synod in 550. Like, this reaction is so strong and so negative that even Justinian, who was happy that the Pope finally came around, has to allow the Pope to withdraw the decree before the West, like, literally exploded and started tearing itself apart. But he only let him withdraw the decree if the Pope would swear to issue a new condemnation of the three chapters at a later time. And this secret pact was put in writing on August 15th of 550, witnessed by Theodore Ascetus and a senator called Cephegus. And this Was not smart. No. You can't be like, yeah, so I'm gonna undo this, but then, yeah, I'll just redo it later. And I will let everybody witness it, and I'll put it in writing. Virgilius. I don't know how he got to where he got with all these real poor decisions. Um, murdering the previous pope. But yeah, but you would think that like he would have told somebody and then they would have told everybody else and it wouldn't be a surprise. I mean, this is kind of what he did anyway. So we have to remember that he got to be Pope in that position because he had all of those secret dealings with Theodora and then he actually became Pope and went, none of that. So between the emperor and the Pope at this point, it was decided that if there was going to be any type of unified decision on the three chapters that would actually be accepted by both the Eastern and Western churches, it would have to happen at a proper ecumenical council. So Vigilius proposed a council in Italy, and Justinian proposed Constantinople, and Vigilius proposed maybe Sicily as a compromise. It's like trying to get Jade to come to my house. It's exactly like that, because as soon as he proposes Sicily as a compromise, Justinian goes, I'm going to go ahead and make plans for Constantinople. It is exactly like trying to get Jay to come to my house. Jay, come to my house. Um, no, I'll make barbecue. Come on. (laughs) That's about right. Vigilius proposed a council pre-meeting with an equal number of representatives from the East and West. And Justinian vetoed this idea in favor of commissioning an equal number of envoys from each of the major patriarchs four of which are in the east, with only Rome really in the west. Clearly, if Justinian was going to have his way, the council was going to be a predominantly eastern council, if not entirely so, other than the pope, since it was going to be so much further for western bishops to travel. And this justifiably makes Vigilius cautious, and he stalls up the council planning. Like, negotiations between him and Justinian just kind of break down when it comes to talks about the council, and no council is called for about a year. But by that time, in July of 551, Justinian gets impatient, and he realizes that the Pope is never going to just assent to the kind of council that he wants to have, so he instead just prepares a new condemnation edict for the three chapters. For immediate publication and dissemination across the whole empire. Like you do. Like you do. I'm just going to go over your head. No, council, here's the edict. Boom. And the Pope is furious. And instead of just refusing to acknowledge this new decree, he goes ahead and excommunicates the Bishop of Constantinople for his complicity. He breaks off all of the communication with the Emperor, and he tries to flee. And this is where Pope Napping Number Two happened, as we discussed in Vigilius' episode, where we recounted his attempt to seek sanctuary in a basilica, and how he was literally dragged out from the church by his hair, his clothes, and his beard, while he clutched to the altar, only to have the altar break on him. All of that—it's bad luck—and uh, mob pressure forces the imperial guards to back off. But shockingly after this very dramatic turn of events. The Pope and the Emperor come back together once more to try and re-establish plans for an ecumenical council. But just like last time, it becomes clear to the Pope that this council was going to be the Emperor's Way or the Highway. The chapters were going to get condemned, the Western bishops would be a puny fraction of attendance, so they couldn't stand in the way, and so Vigilius throws his hands up and decides, I am not going to attend. I am going to boycott the ecumenical council of the church. I mean, we have had popes who don't attend out of formality or out of age, but now we have a pope who is literally sitting in the city where the council is about to commence, and he's deliberately not going. He's going to show up with picket signs. (sighs) Just going to get size from me. Size. I mean, Vigilius only really deserves size, so that's okay. So, the council does proceed, convoked by Justinian in spite of the Pope, on May 5th to June 2nd, 553. It was held in Constantinople, in the Great Hall attached to the Hagia Sophia Cathedral, which is the very famous and significant cathedral built by Justinian that still stands today. You've definitely seen a picture of it. Probably. And because the Pope was refusing to attend, the Bishop of Constantinople, Eutychius, presided over the council, assisted in part with the other Eastern patriarchs, which are Antioch, Alexandria, and Jerusalem, or at least a representative for those patriarchs. So from a letter from Justinian, we get the greatest hits of the attendance. We have Justinian and Eutychius and Apollinaris of Alexandria, Dominius of Antioch, and Three bishops representing Eustochius of Jerusalem, who are called Stephen, George, and Damian. One of these names is not like the other. Damian. (laughs) And Stephen and George. So there were between 151 to 168 bishops in attendance, with the most consistent number across the sources being 152. And of course, as Justinian planned, the bishops were overwhelmingly Eastern bishops. Only 16 bishops attended from the West, nine from Illyricum and seven from Africa, with no representatives at all from Italy. And as we've seen from the conflict with Vigilius over the summoning of bishops, this was very intentional. Justinian summoned from the major patriarchates an equal number of representatives, but since four of the five patriarchates are in the East, that'd be four Eastern bishops for each Western one so they didn't have a chance to begin with. On May 14th, after the council had begun, Pope Vigilius issued his first constitutum, which contained his judgment on the three chapters. It condemned the writings of Theodore of Mopsuestia and some of Theodoret's writing, and didn't anathematize either of them, and then Ibis gets a free pass. All of these decisions, citing Chalcedon as a justification for both Theodoret and Ios had been cleared as Orthodox there, and he's going, I don't feel like condemning Theodore of Mopsuestia either. The Constitutum also condemned the council for proceeding without him and forbade it to continue. Because, you know, he just is going to go, stop this at once. The Constitutum was signed by 16 Western bishops, nine from Italy, two from Africa, two from Illyricum, and three from Asia Minor, to demonstrate that Vigilius, at this point gotten some support back in the West. By defying this council, he's he's getting a little bit of cloak. He's got some friends. Yeah. But, uh, the constitutum had no effect and was entirely disregarded. Surprise, surprise! Yeah, like, Justinian's gonna look at a piece of paper and go, ooh, I'm scared. The Pope thought he'd read it out. At the council. Kel surprise! It did not happen! <laughs> like, the council itself was just an overt exercise in imperial pressure, so... For all intents and purposes, it was a show for Justinian to legitimize exactly what he wanted. So all the bishops are there for the express purpose of condemning the three chapters. And uh Vigilius is like, you're going to read this letter where I forbid you to do that. Sure, Vigilius. That's exactly what they're going to do. <laughs> so the council sat for eight sessions, but because the original Greek records of the council have been lost. We don't have detail for all of the sessions and what was discussed at each, but we can cover what we do know, which are sessions 1, 7, and 8. So from the first session, we have a letter from the emperor that was read out to all of the bishops who were in attendance, officially accepting the decrees of the first four ecumenical councils. Yes, that also means Chalcedon and outlined the purpose of his new council as unifying the church by clarifying that the Chalcedonian definition was in distinct opposition to Nestorianism and the Antiochian theology, and that Mary is the god-bearer Theotokos, not merely the human Christ-bearing Christikos. He calls on them to pass an official condemnation of the grievous blasphemies of the three chapters to accomplish his goal. The letter also reminds everyone that Pope Vigilius had condemned the three chapters in his first judicatum. When, for example, Vigilius, Pope of Old Rome, came hither, he, in answer to our questions, repeatedly anathematized in the writings of the three chapters, and confirmed his steadfastness in this view by much, even by the condemnation of his deacons, Rusticus and Sebastian. And then he calls out Vigilius for his intransigence in not attending the council. Quote. But now he had altered his view and would no longer have a synod, but required that only the three patriarchs and one other bishop in communion with the pope and the three bishops about him should decide the matter. In vain, we sent several commands to him to take part in the synod. He rejected also our two proposals, either to call a tribunal for decision or to hold a smaller assembly at which, besides him and three bishops, every other patriarch should have a place and voice, with from three to five bishops of his diocese. So it's all very, I tried. I wanted him to hear your voice, but he just wouldn't. He didn't want to hear it. I mean, look around. He's not here. Hello. But... It's in the seventh session that Justinian issues his actual kill shot against the Pope, eliminating him as a threat against the passing of his condemnation and ensuring that Vigilius's boycott would have no effect on the council's legitimacy. And he did this by revealing to the council all of his secret correspondence with the Pope where the Pope had promised to recondemn the three chapters, even after the revocation of his judicatum. The account reads this submission from the emperor, quote, Although, therefore, Vigilius has already frequently condemned the three chapters in writing and has done this also by word of mouth in the presence of the emperor and of the most glorious judges and of many members of the synod and has always been ready to smite with anathema the defenders of Theodore of Mopsuestia and the letter which is attributed to Ibis, and the writings of Theodoret, which had been set forth against the Orthodox faith and against the twelve capitula of the Holy Cyril, yet he has refused to do this in communion with you and your synod. The most pious emperor has sent a minute to your Holy Synod concerning the name of Vigilius, that it be no more inserted in the holy diptychs of the church on account of the impiety which he defended neither let it be recited by you nor retained either in the church or the royal city or in other churches which are entrusted to you and to the other bishops in the state committed by God to his rule. And when you hear this minute, again you will perceive by how much the most serene emperor cares for the unity of the holy churches and for the purity of the holy mysteries. And then the emperor's evidence was read to the council. And he had a lot of it. So, the Pope's boycott of the Council and his display of refusing to condemn the chapters looks like BS. Yeah. Everyone sees his letters and all of his credibility goes out the window. And then, as we just read, Justinian orders them to strike Vigilius's name from the diptychs and officially break communion with him in non sedem sed, sed sedentum which is not the sea, but the one who sits in it. So Constantinople would remain in communion with Rome, just not Vigilius. Mm-hmm. In the records, it's clarified just in case anybody didn't get that part. It says, let us preserve unity to the apostolic See of the most holy church of ancient Rome, carrying out all things according to the tenor of what has been read. So that's the seventh session of the council. And the eighth and final session was for the formalization of the sentence against the three chapters, the Acts and the Canons. Like we mentioned before, unfortunately, the original records have been lost, but a Latin translation still exists containing the final Canons. So in total, the Council produced 14 Canons on Christology and the condemnation of the three chapters. We're not going to read them in full, but here's the summary. Canon 1, 3, 8, and 10 relate to Christ's consubstantiality with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. They did this already. Yeah. Yeah, they did that. You know, it, it basically says that the Christ that performed miracles is the same Christ that suffered and was made flesh, and the Christ that was crucified is truly God, and so on. Canons 4, 5, 6, and 12 are condemnations of Theodore of Mopsuestia and any who would defend his theology. Canon 11 condemns anyone who doesn't repudiate Arius, Eunomius, Macedonius, Apollinarius, Nestorius, Eutyches, and Origen. Canon 13 condemns Theodoret and his defenders. Canon 14 condemns Ibis' letter to Maris. And canons 2, 7, and 9 focus on the hypostatic, ineffable union of Christ's nature and condemn any person who would worship Christ separately for his divinity and humanity. There are also 15 canons condemning the teachings of Origen that are often attributed to this council, but these are thought now in majority to be tampered additions from a later author or canons that were signed by the bishops who attended the council but were passed before the formal commencement of the council, so they're not included officially, and maybe it was just someone later going, hey, let's condemn Origen again. I like beating a dead horse. Well, clearly, they really like beating a dead horse forever and always. So the immediate consequence after this council was that Vigilius was put under extreme house arrest with his nuncios and his supporters exiled. And after several months of the confinement, harassment, and likely very poor conditions, he issued his second constitutum on February 23rd of 554. That basically just retracts his first constitutum and acknowledges the canons of the council as legitimate. So he goes, yep, okay, fine. I condemn the three chapters, and I anathematize anyone who resists me. Quote, whatever is brought forward or anywhere discovered in my name in defense of the three chapters is now nullified. Full stop. Another year later, Vigilius was finally released from his house arrest to go back to Rome, but we know he does not make it back and dies of gallstones along the way in Syracuse. So. The council itself, aside from Pope Vigilius. It was accepted and recognized by both the Eastern and Western churches, although the latter were significantly less quick and enthusiastic about doing so, and were certainly not on the same level of reverence to hold this other council compared to the other ecumenical councils. But there were some holdouts, particularly in Italy. Both Milan and Aquileia issued their own break of communion with Rome due to Vigilius and refused to accept the acts and canons of this council for a good length of time. Milan will accept almost 50 years after the council, and Aquileia won't accept this council until the 8th century. Wow! Visigothic Spain also never accepted the council in its time, So when the next ecumenical council occurred in the late 7th century, it was recorded in their sources incorrectly as the fifth ecumenical council of the church, rather than the sixth. But today, the council is accepted by the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Anglican Church, and the old Catholic Church in quotations, which is another sect from the 1850s. So, the greatest legacy of this council is despite being accepted by the majority of the churches. Monophysites and the Orthodox are not reconciled because of it. So this whole thing, what it was supposed to do, didn't work. And just because the council was generally accepted by the overarching patriarchates doesn't stop new schisms from forming, particularly around the condemnation of Theodore. We're only going to just mention briefly two schisms that pop up, and these are, Monoenergism, which supported Christ having no human energy but a divine function, and monothelitism, which basically took the word nature and swapped it out for will, so it says that Christ had no human will, only a divine will. And we're definitely gonna come back to these in time. Oh yeah, fair. They're the subject for our next ecumenical council, so. Can't figure out how Jesus. <laughs> they cannot figure out how to Jesus, yes. No, just how Jesus. How Jesus, yes. How is baby Jesus formed? <laughs> how Jesus. I feel like that's a shirt I want that just says, how Jesus. Pleased to be that as our merch. <laughs> how Jesus The 5th Ecumenical Council does not know how Jesus... (laughs) People will be looking at the back for the final word. No, just how Jesus... So, we will end with the council's other lasting legacy on the church. Specifically regarding the papacy. Because it just completely destroys all of its prestige. Like, completely. Vigilius is disgraced. And the influence and power that had been carefully curated was, like, whittled down to nothing. Like, one source I read suggested that this council, by virtue of overruling and condemning the Pope, disproves papal infallibility. That's a pretty big claim, so... I mean, there there is somewhat of an argument to be made there. And I mean, there's probably an argument for the whole of Vigilius' papacy against papal infallibility, but... I mean, these are discussions we're going to get into much later where the concept becomes pressing and starts to actually impact our episodes, but it's worth acknowledging now because this is a, a very, very low, low point for the popes. And that's the note we're going to end on because how Jesus. <laughs> so yeah, um, we've been going long. Councils are always a little bit more dense to get through to so i just want to make one thank you this week and that is to richard because you know that book that i'm always going on about papal burials, burials. by dj He he beat us to the fact that we were going to use our patreon money on that and he actually bought it for us so we now have that source which is awesome thank you thank you so much that is so cool thank you thank you richard Heckin' Richard, just uh beating our Patreon funds to the punch. So, awesome! On that note, we can say thank you for listening and goodbye! Bye! <laughs>